Well, I know of no better way to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark than with that song. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. We're going to look today at verses 1 through 11, Mark 14, 1 through 11. Go ahead and turn there. I'll read the text in a few moments. But I want to open up our time this morning with a little bit of a test for you. I'm going to say a word. And I want you to take note of the first thing that comes to your mind, all right? I'm not a psychologist. (laughs) I'm not going to be diagnosing your answers too much, but it's pretty simple. I say a word, you try to remember or take note of the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? All right, here it is. Radical. Radical. I'm going to ask you to respond now. I don't need any verbal answers, just a simple raise of your hand, okay? How many of you, just out of curiosity, associated that word with something positive? You thought of something positive, okay? Looks like about a third. How many of you associated that with something negative? All right, that's about two-thirds. How many of you don't know? Okay, good. (laughs) Everybody knew. For those of you who associated the word with something negative, I totally understand why you would think that. For those of you who raised your hand and said that you think that the word radical is most often associated with something positive, I hope that you could see why some could think of the word in negative connotations. After all, our world, our nation, have been recently rocked by events of death and destruction from radical racism in Charlottesville, Virginia, to death and destruction from radical Islam, as recently as the, weeks, the events that transpired this week in Barcelona, Spain. One writer from the Huffington Post, an admittedly liberal source, asked about this very word, Lately, we've been awash in a debate over the term radical Islamist. Should we use it or not? For my money, the answer is yes. And in addition to the savage beheadings and mass shootings, they want to send women back to the Stone Age. But as a woman in the U.S., I don't fear them nearly as much as I fear the radical Christians. Whoa, you may object. Radical racism may be wrong, and radical Islam may be wrong, but what about radical Christianity? Is it really possible to believe in Jesus too much? To follow Him too passionately? Is wholehearted discipleship something to be feared? Or is it something to be tolerated? Or is it possible that radical Christianity is something to be prized, pursued, praised? We've just come off a missions emphasis weekend with clear calls for some of you to go to China or other places like that. Or for those of you who choose not to go to those places to give your life to the advance of the gospel here in Naples. So we have to ask the question. Is such a radical expectation something to be avoided, accepted? And what I mean by that is, well, it's okay for some people to do that, but I don't have to. Or is it something to be embraced? That's the question that stands before us today. Is radical Christianity something to be rejected, tolerated, or embraced? Mark, through our text, answers this question for us in the clearest of ways. In fact, he's been doing it throughout the entire gospel. First, we know that his priority 
And writing the Gospel of Mark has been to show the good news that Jesus is the divine Messiah. That's his point, right? But very close to that, closely related to that, something that he constantly interjects into his narrative is what it looks like to follow Jesus, the divine Messiah. So he's most concerned about telling us who Jesus is, that good news. But it seems like the second thing on his mind is, how do we respond to this Jesus? What does it look like to follow him? And as we consider that question, we've heard several explanations. Without pointing you to the specific passages, let me just quote a few references for you. We said that following Jesus so far in the book of Mark is a call to repent and believe. Jesus says, whoever does the will of the Father is someone who follows me. Jesus says in another place that if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up your cross, be willing to die. Jesus says that the first will be last in following me, and the last will be first. He said very explicitly in one passage that the rich do not follow me, they cannot. It's impossible, was the word that he uses. And then he's constantly saying that if you're going to follow me, you're going to embrace this paradigm that the least is actually the greatest in the kingdom of God. These are just some of the explanations. But he doesn't just give us explanations. Those are rather abstract. He gives us some concrete, tangible kind of things. He gives us some examples. And we've seen these. We've seen the example most recently of a humble widow quietly giving all that she had. In contrast with the haughty scribes loudly taking all that they could. And as he begins to spotlight his narrative, we're in the last few parts of Mark, last few chapters, toward the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's going to offer us one more clear example of what it means to follow Jesus. If you haven't got the picture yet, he's going to give you another picture. And what's interesting is he's concerned about getting us to the death of Jesus, but all the while preparing us for Jesus' death and betrayal, he's still going to interject this story, and it seems like it happens in a rather odd place. Let me read the text for us now. Mark 14, verses 1 to 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and they sought an opportunity to betray him. You see what's going on here, right? Mark's beginning to talk about Jesus' betrayal leading to his death, and yet it seems odd that he would start the story of betrayal, then interrupt it with this narrative about this extravagant woman, and then pick up on the story of betrayal. Why does he do this? He's done this throughout the book, hasn't he? We've seen Mark over and over again create what some scholars call a Markin sandwich in which he begins a story, he interjects a story, and then he closes with the story so as to highlight a contrast between the outlying elements and the inlying elements. What are the outlying elements here? The enemies of Jesus, his betrayers, the ones who will actually send him to his death. What's on the inside? The one who is loyal. The one who is faithful. 
the one who walks with him. Thereby showing us that extravagance, radical obedience, whatever you want to call it, is the norm for the Christian experience. If there's two options to choose from, you're either with Jesus or against Him. And being with Him is an act of extravagant devotion. In fact, the text presents this as the model of devotion. And it encourages each of us, regardless of our background, to honor Jesus with all that we have. The text today encourages each of us, regardless of our background, to honor Jesus with all that we have. And since it's told in the the shape of a story, I will present it as such in three acts. Act 1 comes in the first two verses. And I would title this, The Undaunted Enemies. You see Jesus' undaunted enemies here. Look at the text again. It was now two days before Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, Mark gives us some time indicators here. If you were reading through the book of Mark from like beginning to end, you would notice something extremely different here. Mark hasn't given us any time indicators in the entire book. He hasn't told us any particular time of the year. He's spoken in generalities in those days, after John the Baptist was arrested, on a Sabbath, the following day, the next day. And yet here we get to chapter 14, and now all of a sudden he's really concerned that we know what time of the month it is, what time of the year. Before Passover, two days before Passover, right before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's he doing here? Why is he being so specific? Mark gives us these details because he's trying to show the difficulty that Jesus' enemies would have in trying to murder him. Remember last week when Rob was preaching and he was pointing out that Jesus is not only a priest and a king, but he's also a prophet? Here Mark is highlighting the same thing. Jesus has already prophesied on four different occasions in the book of Mark that he will be betrayed and killed at the hands of religious leaders. But if you're thinking through the story, if you're just the normal reader of Mark, you're like, this just can't happen. The Christ, the Messiah, is not going to die at the hands of religious leaders. He has to be received by them. It seems absolutely impossible to the disciples. Every time Jesus said that he was going to die and be betrayed, what did they do? They objected. Or they ignored him. Or the text says that they didn't understand him. The Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah kills enemies. He doesn't get killed by them. And so they think this is absolutely impossible. And the reader of Mark, by the way, is also thinking this is absolutely impossible. There is no way that Jesus is going to die. I mean, we just saw back in chapter 12, verse 12. Why don't you look there? Chapter 12, verse 12. Jesus just told this parable of the insurrectionist tenants. He condemns the religious leaders outright on their home turf in the temple. And guess what happens in verse 12? And they, the religious leaders, were seeking to arrest him. But notice this, they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus, at this point in the narrative, is unstoppable. He came into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah, people worshiping him and praising him as the Messiah. He steps into the temple, condemns it. He doesn't get stoned. People hear him gladly. He is a popular man in Jerusalem at this time. And Mark gives us these details to highlight the fact that these religious leaders, if they're going to kill Jesus, they're going to need help from God himself to get the job done. Because right now, he is untouchable. Why why does Passover and unleavened bread highlight this problem? Because the city's crowded. That's what Mark wants you to know. The city's crowded and Jesus is popular. And a crowded city under Roman rule leads to something else, and that is Roman law enforcement. And these men are scared to death of arresting Jesus who is popular with the people and inciting any kind of a riot because if they lose control over the people, they lose control over everything. Rome will come in swiftly, take away whatever remnants of power they do have, and so they're in a political catch-22. They want Jesus dead, but the people like Him, and they need, this is what they have to have, they need some secret way to arrest Him. 
Because after Passover's over, presumably in their mind, Jesus is going back to Galilee where he came from. If they're going to kill him, the time has to be now, but there are too many obstacles in the way, and Mark wants you to see that. It's crowded, and he even clarifies this. Look at the second half of verse 1. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. I love the way the NIV actually translates this. It says, they were looking for some sly way to arrest him. A sly way. But they're undaunted. The imperfect tense of the verb there makes it clear. They just keep seeking. They will not give up on this. They are continually seeking a way to kill Jesus. So, with this. Mark sets us in the story on a trajectory for the death of Jesus, and like every good storyteller, he first highlights the conflict, the problem. Jesus is supposed to die in Jerusalem at the hands of these men, but he seems invisible, invincible at this time of year and because of his popularity with the people. And yet, right here, the plot takes a twist. As is typical in the gospel, Mark interrupts the narrative with a seemingly unrelated account of devotion to Jesus. What could he be telling us? Let's look now at Act 2, the unexpected example. Act 1, the undaunted religious leaders. Act 2, the unexpected example. And for now, just look at the first half of verse 3 with me. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Now st stop. Just notice what we see so far. At this point in the story, Mark doesn't give us any time indicators. Now he just simply starts telling a story of an account of something that happened in Bethany, presumably in the same week. It doesn't even say that it was at the same time. We see another record of this story in John chapter 12. The exact same time, the exact same woman, and we have a ton of details in John that Mark does not give us. And it's just kind of a religious, I mean, a preaching preference of mine. I don't want to go read John to fill in the details because Mark here intentionally doesn't give us certain details. What's happening here is he chooses to frame his story in a most basic way to get, make a point. What has he told us so far? Well, we know that this story is leading up to this example or model of devotion and discipleship and yet it happens in a most unexpected setting. He's in Bethany. He's not in Jerusalem. If there was going to be a place where this example par excellence, devotion to Jesus would take place, you would think it would be in the holy city. And it doesn't happen in the holy city. It happens in the equivalent of Immokalee. No offense to any of you who live there. All right, so the second thing is not only that it's outside of the holy city, but it's also in a house that would have been presumed to be unclean. He doesn't give many details, but he does give us one. There's this man named Simon, the leper, that's his title, and it's his house. Now we know that Jesus has probably already healed this man, otherwise he would not have been able to sit down and eat with him without being ritually defiled. But a leper was not only unclean, but his entire house was considered unclean. For the superstitious Jews of the time to actually go and eat in a place like this, even if the man had been healed, would have been suspect. It would have been like you eating at some like C-rated restaurant, and you just swear the tacos are great here. <laughs> but most normal people don't want to step into that environment. That's almost what this is like. So he's in an unexpected town for such a great act. He's in an unexpected place for such a great act. And then it comes to the hero of the story, and she is none other than an unnamed woman. He doesn't even give her name. It's just a woman. Now, if there was ever going to be an example in this world, I'm not talking about in our more egalitarian society. I'm talking about in first century, first century patriarchal type of world. They would not have thought that the hero would have been a woman. And yet it is. It's an unnamed woman at that. And so he is making the point, this place, this house, and this woman are those from which we would least expect an act of memorable devotion. And that, nevertheless, it happens. This unnamed woman breaks the etiquette of the day by intruding upon a formal dinner. The reason why we know it's a formal dinner, it says he's reclining at table. 
They didn't use tables in that day. They typically just would eat their normal meals on a mat. And yet any time a knee-high table would be set up, it was a more formal event. So as you would see like in um, the picture of Jesus at the Last Supper, you know, all the disciples are reclining on their sides. That would be the case of what's going on here. Jesus is reclining at table. It's nothing but men around the table. They would have been the only ones to eat. And in that culture, the only time that women were allowed into the room was to bring in food or to take dishes away. And yet she interrupts that. She breaks all the rules. And she is clinging to her cherished flask of priceless perfume. Now, in the original language, I want you to note something. Mark stumbles all over himself to convey the value of this ointment. It'd be easy for us just to kind of read past it. He could have just said, it's valuable. But he just strings together a ton of words to point out how valuable this is. So before we proceed, I want you to notice. Notice this flask. It says it's a flask of alabaster. It was a light-colored, translucent mineral, primarily comprised of gypsum. So if you could think of something today, not in value, but at least in terms of appearance, like plaster of Paris. Something very thin, easy to shape, uh, but could hold something. That, that's exactly what she has. John actually tells us that it could hold a pound of ointment. So you've got this flask that could hold a pound of ointment, and the way those particular bottles were designed in those days, as they are in our own, was they had a very small neck. Now, for those of you essential oils fanatics, you understand the value of a small neck. (laughs) You don't want all the oil spilling out. And so in a similar way, this same flask was designed. So she's got this flask. It's used to hold very precious contents. And we see here that the contents specifically consist of pure nard. Pure nard. It was a highly prized perfume imported from India. Very costly is the adjective that Mark uses. In fact, the men will later estimate its value, we'll see this in just a few moments, at 300 denarii. Now, when you give values or figures in the Bible, it's kind of hard to do a currency exchange and figure out you know, how much money you're dealing with. Well, just know this. Anytime you read in the Bible, we've seen this a couple times in Mark already, when you see denarii, all you need to think of is a day's wage. All right, you take 300 of those, and then you subtract Sabbaths and holidays. This is a year's worth of money in her hand. I was trying to think of ways to make this more concrete, so I'm going to borrow your imaginations for a moment, and let's do another exercise. All right, I want you to think back in your mind. Don't write it down. Don't tell anybody. Think back to how much money you made last year before taxes. Don't worry, we're not giving this number to anybody, but I want you to have a number in your mind. Now, imagine liquidating that sum of money into a jar the size of your hand. And I want you just to feel the pressure of holding that much money for a moment. Whatever you made, this will be different for different people, but if it represented a year of your life before taxes, it's a lot. I remember working at the restaurant having to go make the deposits at the end of the day. And it was a rather, we probably should have had a better policy, but it was me by myself walking over to the bank at 10 o'clock at night with thousands upon thousands of dollars of cash in a plastic bag. (laughs) Bad plan. (laughs) Oh man, but the pressure I felt holding that much money in one place. And at that point, we're only talking 13 $15,000. Here we're talking about an entire year. And one of the things that I think we forget here is that this is a woman. She doesn't have any lucrative business opportunities waiting for her on the horizon. The only way she ever would have been able to receive a gift of this value would have been a family heirloom. So you almost need to imagine yourself holding last year's salary in your hands and then being put on disability for the rest of your life. And with that in mind, put yourself in this woman's sandals as you read the second half of the verse. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
And the Greek word for broke conveys total destruction, smashed, shattered, never to be used again, thereby symbolizing the totality of the gift. This was such an unnecessarily wasteful and inefficient means of getting the liquid out of the flask. It could have been opened. She could have dabbed it on him, but she couldn't wait to do that. She just broke the neck and poured it. And John even records that she not only poured it on his head, but that it actually made its way down to his feet. It's a passionate display of adoration. And dare I say it? A radical one. How does the crowd react to such extravagant sacrifice to honor Jesus? Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now, what's interesting is that this isn't just a quiet anger. They're so angry that they feel like they have to talk about it. You know that that's when things are bad. Her radical sacrifice is met with scorn and retribution of the men present. And get the picture. You have this helpless, powerless woman who has offered everything to Jesus. And the authorities in the room attack her offering as ridiculous and wasteful. In fact, they don't just let out a solitary cry of frustration, but Mark is careful to note, again, verb tense, that they are continually scolding and criticizing and rebuking her. They will not let this thing go. This seems pitiful. You've got this well-meaning, passionate, emotionally raw woman. She sacrificed her honor and her income to express adoration for her Lord, and she's rebuked for it. Maybe you can sympathize. You've seen this happen before. Have you ever seen someone rebuked when they gave all? Maybe you've done that before. Maybe it was you giving your best as a child academically only to have your parents lean into you. Or maybe it was on an athletic field as a child and had an overly aggressive dad who just didn't think you tried hard enough. What makes this worse is that it's not just one authority speaking to her. She is ganged up on by the group and attacked. So in the midst of this scolding, Jesus speaks up. And he's going to clarify for us through what he says how we should interpret this act of extravagance. Remember, we're wondering, what should we do about radical Christianity? Well, here's how Jesus interprets it. Verse 6. But Jesus said to them, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus interrupts the outrage by coming to her defense. He issues a cease and desist order exposing the inappropriateness of them bothering her in this way. Their actions were unacceptable. Why? Here's a simple rationale. Because she had done something to him that was good, depending on your translation, or beautiful. The Greek word's the same. Good or beautiful. She has done something good or beautiful to me. My kids have started attending a new school this year. And in talking with some of the teachers and the leadership, I keep hearing this phrase over and over again where they say that we want each of our students to learn the true, do the good, and love the beautiful. I like that statement. Learn the true, do the good, love the beautiful. Who could argue with that? I mean, I can't think of any of you in this room who would consciously say, you know what, I don't want kids learning, loving, and doing those things. (laughs) But the question I want to challenge you with this morning is, what does Jesus consider to be? The good and the beautiful. How do we define that as believers who have submitted ourselves to Christ and His definitions matter? We have our answer before us in this text. The men around that table that night had a different conception of good and beautiful than Jesus. 
But our Lord defines good and beautiful as radical devotion to Him. Notice verse 7, it can be kind of problematic. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Some people have tried to construe this to say, look how insensitive Jesus is. He didn't care for the poor. I don't think that's what Jesus said. He actually said, you can do good for them whenever you want. The prominent value system represented around the table that night is what's being addressed here. And those men didn't think that Jesus deserved such an extravagant sacrifice. That's the problem that he's fixing. The poor, to them, supposedly, would have been a superior investment of such resources. Now, I want you to weigh their logic for a moment. Let's not just easily dismiss. I mean, we all know that the redistribution of resources for the poor is often a cloak for personal gain. All right? You don't have to be a politician to understand it. We know that. But let's just assume that their motives are good. Let's just assume that, you know what, they really did think that this money should have gone to the poor instead of going to Jesus. Well, they're arguing that on good grounds. I mean, repeatedly through the Old Testament, God had demanded the nation of Israel to care for the poor and the helpless. Jesus is the defender of the poor par excellence. Frequently through the Gospels, we see Him defending those people. Giving to the poor is good. So they offer, these men offer a seemingly noble answer to our question. So what is the good? What is the beautiful? And they say giving to the poor. But in this circumstance, Jesus tells them that there is something even more important than the poor. Actually, let me rephrase that. He tells them that there is someone more important than the poor. Listen carefully, please. Far from demeaning any charity, Jesus is simply putting forth his own person in scandalous prominence. He is asserting his superior value over all other goods. That's why we would sing today, Jesus is better. He's in effect placing himself even above the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the question for you, for those of you who grew up in church. That's only one half of the great commandment. What's the upper half? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love Him exclusively. Love Him extravagantly. Jesus is placing Himself on par with God Himself and saying that there is something even better than giving to the poor as good as that is. This is a great theology lesson for us. Jesus, as God, is preeminent. He takes priority. Honoring Him is the highest beauty, and no sacrifice for Him is ever a waste. So Jesus doesn't discourage giving to the poor. He simply emphasizes sacrifice for His glory. Yes, there are times, circumstances, in which we should give to the poor and the needy. He affirms that in the text. Yet there is never a time in which it is not good and it is not beautiful to offer everything we have for the glory of Jesus. We must never allow the good to become the enemy of the best. We must never allow the good to become the enemy of the best. So Jesus protects her. He thinks highly of this. And He even praises her. What they criticize, He commends. Look at verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now what does he commend her for? Why was her sacrifice so praiseworthy? What kind of action does Jesus promote? Now you, you want to give an answer to that, but let's answer this from the world's perspective for a moment. If, if we were to pose that question to the world, what is praiseworthy? What is good? What is beautiful? What is it that we should commend and prize and uphold for future generations? Well, I think we would come up with the usual. All you got to do is just look at the nearest trophy or statue that you can find. And it'll probably praise someone for military greatness or athletic achievement or 
academic excellence or political skill or financial abundance or sexual appeal. That's what our world values. That's the thing that they give trophies for. That's the thing that they want to remember. And Jesus, though, what does Jesus honor? What does Jesus value? What does He reward? Notice his statement here. This is so powerful. This is all he says. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Are those words not mind-blowing to you? She has done what she could. He doesn't have a particular financial value in mind. He doesn't have a particular time commitment in mind. I wish it was that easy. I wish I could just say, I'm going to give my 10% to church, I'm going to check into church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and I'm going to read my Bible every day, and then the rest of my life's for me. I wish it was that stinking easy, but it's not. What Jesus expects is that you do all you can. That's the expectation of Jesus. And so as I'm trying to think, all right, how should we assess radical Christianity? Is it something to be rejected? Is it something to be tolerated? Or is it something to be embraced? i just got to go ahead and show my hand. I'm leaning this way. And I think you should too. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Who does he give that to? Everyone. Everyone gives their bodies as a sacrifice to God. They give it back to him. Are you catching them here? What I'm trying to get you to understand this morning, and forgive me for being so passionate about it, but I think that Christians sometimes have a hard time learning this very important lesson that Jesus' values are different than those of the world around us. Jesus' values are different than those of the world around us. The world would say, dial it back. It's okay for you to dab a little perfume on Jesus' neck, but don't get too crazy or fanatical. The world would say, it's cool if you want to check in from Jesus, with Jesus from time to time and go to church every once in a while or pray every once in a while, but you don't commit to a church. You don't pray every day. Your unsaved friends and family will tell you things like, look, it's good if you want to give some to the church and you want to donate some money to charity, but don't dedicate all your resources to the Lord and His work. Your neighbors would look at you and say things like, look, if you want to volunteer with your religious community or group, that's awesome. If you want to go on a mission trip from time to time and do some good, that's great. But don't actually orient your career and retirement around reaching other people for Jesus. Summary. In other words, in our world, you can be all in about significance, schooling, sex, style, or stuff. But you can't be all in for Jesus. We live in a world with different values. Do not let those values bleed into your life as a believer. After all, those people, to quote the Huffington Post writer, they're dangerous. I assure you, friends, that Jesus does not consider radical discipleship a threat, and you shouldn't either. The problem with radical Islam, by the way, and radical racism, isn't the fervency of their belief, it's the focal point. It's not that they're, they're too passionate. It's, the problem is that they're passionate about the wrong things. 
Devotion to the risen Jesus is good, is good for you, it is good for the world. Where do you think, by the way, that hospitals and schools have come from through thousands of years of church history? It has been people dedicated to the risen Christ. I promise you, somebody who's all in for Jesus doesn't want to go on some type of rampage to kill other people. They are in for the good of the world and society. It is a good thing, it is beautiful. To radically dedicate your life to Jesus. We need to understand that the Word works on a different value system. Jesus' values can be seen in what He protects and what He praises. And that's nothing close to what we see around us. I want you to know that for the scores of you who are here today who say, you know what, I'm giving them all I've got. I'm giving them my time and my resources and my energy. I want you to know that Jesus knows and that He cares. Look, you just do all you can. That's all He asks. I think sometimes we look at somebody like Rob Clark who came and preached last week and he did such a good job at talking about how normal he is. But you think, oh, those guys go to China. Or you look at a pastor and you're like, oh, he went to seminary. Look, we've all got different things. We all serve in different ways. The point is that we do what we can. It's, it's been a humbling experience even to talk to some of the widows in our church and their desire to be involved in ministry around here. And they're like, I'm just so... Limited, I don't have but so much that I can offer. And yet they offer what little they have. And to that, Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> Do you not find it interesting that Jesus praises this woman who gives a year's salary just as much as he praised the woman a couple chapters ago who only gave two pennies? Because it's not about equal giving, it's about equal sacrifice. We give all we can. As tempting as it would be to close the story here, Mark continues with the third act. And he's going to reorient us to his main point. And having shown us the undaunted religious leaders and the unexpected example, he concludes with an unlikely enemy. Act 3, the unlikely enemy. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. Now he picks up again on the story of betrayal. When we left that story, Jesus seemed unstoppable. I mean, he's got the protection of Passover. All these people are here. Nobody can get to him. Despite the design to the religious leaders, it seemed impossible to capture him, to, to arrest him. Why? Because they were afraid of the people. So remember, they needed to be sly. They needed to be stealthy. They had to be able to get to Jesus at a point in a time in which he was alone and out of public sight. But how in the world are they ever going to find him in that position unless they know where he's going to be at? And how will they know where he's going to be unless someone from his circle tells them? Without assistance from the inside, this plan will fail. And in verse 10, the assistance comes. And in verse 11, notice the sickening line. When they heard it, they were glad. They rejoiced. And promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. It's as if God had given them the break that they needed through the defection of Judas. Mark doesn't tell us what his motive is. John does, Luke does, Matthew does, and we see three different things actually. But what Mark does is interesting. What Mark highlights more than anything else, the thing that he wants you to remember about what's going on right here is that Judas Iscariot is one of the twelve. That's all he tells you. We've got an unnamed woman who's getting held up as the most unlikely example of devotion. Nobody would have ever expected her to be the model of greatness. And then in contrast with that, you've got one of the twelve. And this is the one that turns on Jesus. And so we see that faithfulness, unfaithfulness can come from the most unlikely places. Once again, in Mark, the least likely, 
become the greatest. And the greatest become the least. What's interesting here is that the plan of God proceeds right on schedule. Jesus, as the prophet, calls it once more. And it's at this point that he will be delivered over into their hands. Interestingly, the word delivered is the same word translated here, betray. The betrayal, the delivery over is happening. But there's a lesson for us. And I just mentioned it, but we need to learn it. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness to Him. If you're here today and you're from a Christian background, let's say you grew up in church. You went to Sunday school and that type of thing. Your your parents claimed to be Christians. You read the Bible some. You had a Bible growing up. I don't take that for granted. I realize that could be some of you. Please hear this lesson. Hear this lesson for your kids if they seem to be close to things spiritual as well. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness to Him. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness to Him. There are only two groups of people in this passage. There are those who are seeking their own honor in spite of Jesus. And there are those who are seeking Jesus' honor in spite of themselves. Which one are you? I don't care about your background. I'm just worried, are you the one seeking the honor of Jesus? In spite of yourself? Or seeking your own honor in spite of Jesus? I know that you know that Jesus died for your sins and and that He rose again and that if you'd repent and believe, you know these things in your head, that if you repent and believe that, that that sacrifice is applied to you, My question isn't, do you know that? My question is, have you ever done that? Have you ever relinquished your life and a confidence in yourself and exchanged it for a confidence alone in Jesus, trusting in Him alone? The text not only teaches us that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness, but it also encourages us that distance from Jesus does not guarantee forsaking Him. What I love about this whole picture is that it's the outsider who ends up being the one that's honored. Maybe you didn't come from the religious background. Maybe you have had a checkered past. Maybe you are the least likely to be a Christian winner. A war. Yet, here, we have this woman, unnamed. We don't know her religious position. We don't know where she came from. All we know is that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I love that. In memory of her. That's greatness. Even nobodies and outsiders can follow Jesus faithfully and live for Him meaningfully if they'll just surrender to Him what they have. We all, regardless of our background, can exhibit this kind of devotion. That's what this picture shows us. As we start off a new school year, many of you who are no longer in school can think back to those early days where you begin to walk into a school hallway and look around, whether it be the halls and the walls or at the actual walls in the classroom, and they look kind of bare this time of year. The reason why is because the kids haven't done any work yet to be posted. But those teachers will eventually begin to fill up those bulletin boards with commendable examples of excellent work. They do that to encourage the students. They do that to not only encourage the students that did it, but also to encourage the students that are still trying. It's possible. Your peers, the people that you're growing up with, the people that are in your class, they did it. You can do it. When I look at this story, I see something similar going on. Jesus posts this picture up on the bulletin board of eternity. And this one's never coming down. And he says, look, see, learn. Radical devotion. Extravagant adoration. No matter what your background, no matter what you have, this is for you. This isn't anything to be rejected. This isn't even anything to be merely tolerated. As if it's for some people and not for others. This is something to be embraced. 
There is no following Jesus apart from following Him radically. So Mark gives us this picture. And it tells us that God expects every one of us who follow Him to do so with all that we have regardless of who we are or what we own. Regardless of who we are or what we own. I don't care if you're a teenager, a widow, someone with a compromised past, someone who has failed often on Jesus. doesn't matter. He expects you. You can follow Him in this way. You may not come from a Christian home. This church thing may be new to you. You may not know that much about the Bible or have a significant track record of Christian service or any type of impressive pedigree. You may not even have the opportunities that other people may have in this church, and yet you can follow Him in this way. You can not only do this in spite of who you are, but also in light of what you have or what you don't have. You know, when you read the passage of the poor widow, you think, oh, well, unless I'm poor or destitute, I can't serve Jesus radically. And yet here you see a woman who gives a lifetime's worth of wages. The point isn't how much you have. The point is how much you have left after you give it to Jesus. It all belongs to Him. You just give Him what you have. You pour your life out for His glory. Even if you don't have much to sacrifice Him, give it anyway. And you will know the peace and the purpose that can only be found in living a life for the glory and honor of Jesus. I don't know of any better way to live. Will you give it all to Him today? If that's your desire and prayer, I pray that you would commit that to Him today. If you've already committed that, let's do it again. We're about to sing a song of dedication to our King. Musicians are about to come forward. But here's the, the invitation, if you will. The way I would have you respond. If you desire to follow Jesus with all that you have, to live your life as a living sacrifice to Him, my encouragement for you would be to sing out with us. If you're not sure, you have questions, it's okay. Just listen to us sing and talk to one of our members after. Talk to one of the pastors We'd love to talk with you further about the joy that you can have in living for Jesus. I'd hate for you to close a song uh, of dedication to God if you're not dedicated to Him. So we're not asking you to sing if you're not, this is not you. It's okay. We're not going to call you out. But if this is your heart's cry today, if this is what you want, let's sing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, take my life and let it be.